and welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 81, recorded on November 25th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. Good to be connected with you. And we're going to kick off this week's episode with one of our favorite topics to speculate about, and that's fuchsia. <laughs> it's just, you can't resist it, especially when Huawei is testing fuchsia on the Honor Play. Yeah, now this hasn't been officially announced, but people have been digging through the Fuchsia source code and they saw the Honor Play in there. And so people have kind of put two and two together and realized that it looks like Google are working with Huawei again like they did on the Nexus 6P. And this could maybe be the first phone, but that seems like a long shot. It seems like maybe they just need a device to do some testing on. Yeah, perhaps. You could really see this going either way. We don't know. Uh, Google has yet to really speak publicly about Project Fuchsia. We know it's open source. Um, We know it's been getting worked on for years now. It's kind of going a slow but steady pace. Many people speculate eventually that Fuchsia will replace Android completely. While the operating system is still in its current state, far from finished, we know that Huawei will possibly be the first OEM now. That's kind of a milestone in the development of a project like this, a target device to try to get working. And from the commit logs, we know that Fuchsia is booting. It's specific Zycron. What's it called, Joe? The Zycron kernel? Zircon. Zircon? Yeah. Zircon. Yeah, okay. The Zircon kernel is actually booting on the Honor Play. So it's either way you look at this, whether this is going to be a shipping device, it's, it's actually a huge milestone regardless. And it's not a particularly high-end device. Far from it, really. It's very much mid-range. I've just had a look now, and you can pick one up for £250 in the UK. So this is not a high-end flagship. It looks very much like an iPhone, though, doesn't it? It's one of those yeah. clones of yeah. the iPhone mm-hmm. 10. Well, and it's not just the Honor Play, really. The patch itself adds support for the high silicon 970 system on a chip to Fuchsia's kernel. And um, the Honor Play is just one of a handful of devices that use that chipset. So there's some higher range phones that this technically is adding support for as well. But to me, this isn't great news, really, because Huawei have been pretty hostile to the custom ROM community in that this year they locked down their bootloaders, so you can't really flash custom ROMs anymore. So you'd think that with a new project like Fuchsia, that they would go for a more hacker-friendly OEM, but maybe that sort of points towards the new direction they've been going in since they ditched Nexus. Oh, oh Joe, you, you have this adorable free software perspective that you just can't shake. you got to think about this from total market domination perspective. You see, you get everybody to eat the shit sandwich up front, and then later on, everything's great. So, for example, you want to ship the iPhone 10 without a headphone jack? and you don't want that to be the number one story, you remove it in the iPhone 7. You get everybody to eat the shit sandwich ahead of time. This is what's been going on with these bootloaders for ages now. First it was get the unlock codes from the website, then it was get the unlock codes from tech support, then it was no unlock codes for you. It's a gradual progression, so that way you have to run the OS they've blessed. The experience 
Sorry, I should get that right. The experience that they've blessed for you, Joe. And in the future, it may be a fuchsia-based experience, and they want you to understand that story, Joe. And if you don't understand that story and that experience, then that's the wrong device for you. Heaven forbid you just reflash it with an operating system that works better for you and has a great legacy application support. <laughs> Heaven forbid. <laughs> no, you, you need to understand their story, Joe. Well, yeah, they're moving much more towards the Apple way of doing things, where good luck flashing a custom ROM on an iPhone. Yeah, why do they have to do this just as I'm starting to really enjoy the Pixel? Go figure, right? But just between you and me, don't, don't tell anybody else this. As long as they don't touch Chrome OS, I'm, I'm pretty happy. Chrome OS, I think, is the real success story for Linux. Android has always felt like a bastardized version of Linux. Like they took everything that's great about Linux and open source and kind of killed it and just wrecked it and then shipped this vulnerability in a pocket to everybody that's out there. So now we have like a billion Android users that have zero-day exploits on their phone that are always connected to the internet. The TechSnap broadcaster in me just cries at this security travesty. And I'm, I'm ready to just get rid of Android. It just, it feels like it was a bad experiment to compete with the iOS ecosystem that never really worked. And I, I, I like Android where it's gotten to, but I'm, I'm ready for it to be gone. Chrome OS, however, if they replace Chrome OS with a Fuchsia kernel and a Fuchsia user land, me and Google are going to have some words. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, it's all speculation really, isn't it, at this stage? It could be like one of the many projects that Google have tried and ditched, and we may actually never see it ship on devices. It could just be a backup plan for them for all we know, but somehow I don't think that's the case. I think that we will be seeing future devices within the next couple of years, but who knows? Yeah, you know, knowing Google, we're going to see Android devices for years. I mean, we just recently talked about Android getting multi-year kernel support in just the most recent Android releases in Linux Unplugged. They're doing work right now to make Android devices supported for years. So they may have a multi-OS strategy here, but going back to your point about discontinued devices, I mean, everybody loves to give Google a hard time about discontinuing services, but this week, Valve discontinued a device that I actually thought was the future of the company. Yeah, the Steam Link box which they heavily discounted it and then sold a lot of them, and that's it. They're not making any more of them. Heavily discounted them? For a period of time, they were selling them for $2.50. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's remarkable. Now, I, I, I guess I should back up here because you might not even know what the Steam Link is if you're not a gamer. The Steam Link device was this tiny, slim piece of hardware that had USB and Ethernet and HDMI out the back. It was smaller than any set-top device that you might find on the market right now, even like the NVIDIA Shield or the Apple TV. It was tiny. And it would link back to a more powerful PC, maybe that had the latest GPU or had a decent CPU and it had some memory, and you could really render some graphics. And it would stream that to the Steam Link to your TV, which would have a controller, of course, like the Steam controller or the Xbox controller or whatever you might like hooked up to your television. And the idea was all over your LAN with low latency and great response time, you could stream something from a much more powerful PC, maybe even a Windows PC, heaven forbid, or right to the Steam Link connected to your television. And you could get that console experience regardless. And the great thing, of course, for us geeks, was that the Steam Link was running Linux. 
And this was all over your land. No weird internet connection latency issues or problems with streaming because it's just on your Wi-Fi. You get good Wi-Fi and you've got great game streaming. Well, this ties in with the death of the Steam boxes as well. It's them wrapping up the hardware business and just doing pure software now because you can get the same functionality with an Android device, with the Android app. I mean, I presume your NVIDIA Shield can do it. That's been Valve's answer. Oh, we're going to solve it with the apps. But if there has been something for the NVIDIA Shield TV that is Valve created, I haven't seen it yet. I I, I don't know. The, the thing is, this is a dedicated system. You have it on a dedicated input. It's it's hardware versus an app. And that when it comes to gaming, it does make a difference. And I'm surprised by this because I, I really thought, in a way, this was sort of the future of what Valve wanted to offer. Microsoft is launching Xbox in the cloud, which is streaming gaming. Google is launching streaming gaming. Nintendo offers streaming gaming in a, in a limited way right now with the Nintendo Classic. It's, it's becoming a phenomenon. And then, of course, speaking of the NVIDIA Shield, there is also the GeForce streaming service, which <laughs> actually seems to be the best out of all of them in my testing. All of this is streaming over the internet, though. And it is susceptible to bad latency, uh, routes that get get slow, just average Comcast issues that strike people every single day. It's susceptible to all of these kinds of problems that impact the internet. Whereas the Steam Link system was over the LAN. And it, it seemed like to me the, the, the cleverest of them all. You invest in one machine, which you could stick in the garage or a closet somewhere, and you can Steam Link and stream to all of your PCs and your televisions. It, to me, was the perfect system. And I thought Valve was ahead of everybody else. While everyone else is trying to figure out how to stream video games over the internet, Valve was like, well, screw that. We'll just stream it over your LAN. Problem solved. And to see them kind of back off and say, oh, well, um, you can do it on these Android devices, which have uh, random input latency issues and have random Wi-Fi issues, and you can't put it on your television. And, you know, don't worry about not being able to hook up a controller, but you, you, could, you could play it on your phone. That's, that, that's good enough. And to me, I just, I'm shocked by this. Well, I'm not shocked. In three years since it launched, they still didn't have a Generation 2 with Gigabit Ethernet which was what everyone wanted, surely. Mm, come on, really? I mean, I thought, I mean, maybe, but, it, you know, you're talking 1080p gaming here. I thought what you'd, what you'd expect to see is once 4K really became established in the home, Valve would just iterate on top of this thing and release a 4K version. And it seemed like the perfect machine because it ran Linux, it was controlled by Valve, it was tiny, it was accepting any kind of controller that you wanted to play with, and it would stream games from a machine that ran Linux or Windows or probably even a Mac if there was a game that ran on a Mac. Like, you could do that. And now, at best, what you're going to get is an Android layer underneath all of this, which will add latency, add complexity, require updates. It's just, it's not the same experience. And so, it's just... I'm frustrated because I thought Valve was way ahead of the game here. And um, also, I wasn't able to get one at $2.50. So that might be... <laughs> <laughs> That's what you're really annoyed about, yeah. <laughs> what I really want to know now is how long are they going to support this from Steam? Is it going to just drop off within a year or so? Or are they going to have to support it long term? 
I think a long time, Joe. I mean, I think if you bought it at $2.50, that may be one of the better $2.50 you've ever spent, especially like when you consider there's apps that you've probably bought at that and then deleted. Um, I, I just going by the recent code contributions by Valve engineers, they have been working on the streaming technology. They've been making upstream contributions to different projects to improve compatibility with Steam Link streaming as of three weeks ago. So this is obviously from an application layer, something they're going to support for a long time. And it seems like a pretty trivial effort to continue to support this device because you're talking an H.264 stream and then the controls and a communications channel for all of that. And the magic sauce is keeping that low latency, which is where a lot of the recent code contributions have been. Like they're continuing to innovate in that area and then contributing that to upstream projects. That's not something you do when you're pulling out of a project. Yeah, true. Well, $2.50 is not much. What about the 300 or so dollars that you spent on the Atari VCS and still haven't received? (laughs) (sighs) Yeah. Less and less enthusiastic as time goes on. I kind of forgot about it. And then when I read this, it's... (sighs) It's hard to get psyched. I think I think I've kind of lost my enthusiasm. So the Atari VCS is supposed to be a box which will offer a bunch of retro games and more running Linux. And now we have what are essentially raw notes from Rob Wyatt who's working on the Atari VCS operating system. He's the system architect. And these raw notes, they 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 don't leave me super inspired, but it all kind of doesn't surprise me either. What is it that doesn't inspire you then? The fact that it's going to be more locked down than you'd hoped or what? Well, I think in part it is now that some time has passed, it feels a bit like the Ubuntu phone versus Android situation all over again. Like a like a, a plucky upstart is going to come along and disrupt some entrenched market leaders. <laughs> that's That's not very likely. But lockdown, I don't know if I agree with that. In fact, in their blog, in these notes, one of the notes is the VCS is all about democratizing the game console. They've been locked down for far too long. The VCS can have an Atari world, which has an online store. It's safe and secure with parental controls and the ability to launch apps that can do all of the stuff that a modern console should. But outside of our world, we'll support users installing their other operating systems, the ones they like, very much like the original PlayStation 3, but without the hardware restrictions. Famously, uh, the PlayStation 3 had a virtualizer. You can install Linux, but (laughs) then you couldn't get to the GPU. Their virtualizer, they say, won't have those kinds of limitations. Yeah, but why not just give you access to all of the hardware, why do you need to have any virtualization at all? Why can't you just, it's going to be x86 based, why can't it just boot Linux properly? That's what I meant by lockdown. I suppose that's not realistic in a console and having at least hardware pass through for the GPU and everything is as good as you're going to get, but it's still a little bit disappointing to me because I thought this thing was going to be more hackable when that's kind of how I read it. Maybe that's just wishful thinking by me, but I thought this was going to be a device that, okay, it would have this experience that they would put on it, but it would be completely hackable and you could just do whatever you wanted with it because it is essentially a PC. Yeah, I think they're trying to strike the balance between a secured environment that they can they can claim to game makers or, um, you know, 
publishing companies like Netflix or Hulu, this is a secure environment mm. where piracy cannot take place because everything is signed and we've double-checked everything. In fact, they say any OS that is installed will need its startup code modified because our hypervisor and boot code will enter the OS directly in 64-bit protected mode which uh, the current Linux boots in real mode, which is an interesting aside, but the Atari OS is based on a modified version of the Linux kernel. And they're going to patch components in there and build components in there that they sign to verify the integrity of it. And then it boots up, they can verify everything's good, then they can say, yeah, you can sell your $60 game on our platform because we can guarantee nobody's pirated. Or yeah, you can stream your multi-million dollar movie industry production on our box because no one's going to be pirating this. But to make everybody happy, we're going to make this hypervisor available where you can install your your Ubuntu's or your Arches or your Fedora's and you'll get access to the GPU. Yeah, I suppose realistically that's the best way we're going to get, but it still it still feels a bit disappointing to me because if that experience isn't that great or if Atari just completely moves on from this and moves on to gambling apps and the other stuff that they're working on to make serious money and just completely abandon this down the road, like in a year or two or three or five, whatever, then at least if it was just a PC, then you could install Ubuntu on there, get Cody working on it, whatever. But not being truly open to that hacking limits the possibility of that, I think. Yeah, but then it would also be just a PC, and it would have all of the issues that just a PC has, which maybe we're cool with taking care of, but the average consumer isn't. And their goal as a team is to get the OS and all of the built-in apps to consume just under a gig of storage, and then they want to leave the rest for users. So in a way, what the console offers them is a fixed hardware base. So all the drivers will be built into the kernel. They're not going to have to use modules, and they feel like that's going to make less security attack surfaces. It makes it less of a security risk. And in some cases, it'll make it maybe a little harder to put alternative operating systems on the on the core, like on the like on the root of the hardware. But if they're creating something that has a hypervisor where you can get access to a lot of the physical hardware, it is the best compromise we have seen yet in an appliance-type device that is trying to appease industry licensing requirements. But I agree, it it isn't that exciting anymore. It is a bit ho-hum at this point for me. And at this point, I don't regret backing it because in a way it could be a collector's item, even if it goes, you know, belly up. But I am not excited about it. And it's I don't know. It feels a little. It feels a little uninspired. You 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 see them in here talking about getting the base system up and running and what that took. And to be honest, getting a recent Linux kernel booting on an x86 based platform and then getting the audio to work. <laughs> I, I don't mean to be demeaning, but that's the easy part. And if that's where they've been struggling so far, I I, uh, I don't really have a lot of expectations anymore. Yeah. No wonder the CEO, when he was asked when this thing's going to ship, his answer was 2019. So nice and vague there. Yeah. You know, that might surprise you. You might get it in early January. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I'll tell you what. uh, When I do get it, I'll have a full review. So I'll I'll give you my impressions the moment I receive the item. I was sort of impressed by some news out of Amazon this week. It's it's specifically around their EC2 service. But I think this is something that's going to set a new benchmark for the industry and is going to really take off. It's predictive scaling for EC2 powered by machine learning. 
Yeah, they've had auto-scaling for about 10 years nearly at this point. But this is different, isn't it? This is using algorithms and machine learning to look at your usage, combine that with a load of other factors, and then predict when you need more or less compute power, which potentially is going to save customers, big customers at least, a lot of money. What I like about this story is this is really kind of the promise long-term of the cloud. This is why you go to the cloud, right? So Amazon writes, using data collected from your actual EC2 usage and further informed by billions of data points drawn from our own observations, we will use well-trained machine learning models to predict your expected traffic, including daily and weekly patterns. They do note in here, and this is kind of some interesting insight, the model needs at least one day of historical data to start making predictions. And then that is re-evaluated every 24 hours to create a forecast for the next 48 hours. But like you said, Joe, it actually can help save some money too. So not only is it super simple to set up, which I think will be part of the benchmark now for cloud providers, it's a three-step wizard. You go through it, you turn it on with a single click, go through the three steps, and then it's on. But the part that's kind of nice is it can also predict when things are going to slow down. So it helps you avoid over-provisioning, which will reduce costs. That's kind of nice, too. The whole thing's pretty slick. The whole way it works is really kind of slick, and the visualization system is pretty cool. And you know that Microsoft and Google are scrambling now to match this feature. I was just thinking, too, like, could this trickle down to, like, the DigitalOcean and OVH level as well? Where all of them are collecting, like, your, your network stats and your CPU usage and your memory usage. Like, that's data they have, but they then need a system that sits on top of that and analyzes that intelligently and says, well, historically, you may need more resources, or in, I bet a lot of cases, in fact, I bet the majority of cases for, like, OVH and DigitalOcean, you might need less resources. Well, yeah, that would be very useful for me. Every two weeks when I put out late-night Linux, it would ramp up the resources for 8 hours, 10 hours, 12 hours, and then ramp down and would potentially save quite a lot of money. Yeah, I'm surprised this hasn't really been a bigger thing. Like, I mean, like you said, you've you've had auto-scaling for a while, but this is a whole new level of auto-scaling, auto auto-prediction. It, it is finally taking advantage of what computers are inherently good at and then applying them to our infrastructure. And Drone.io has a similar idea. The Drone.io co-founder and Packet are teaming up for a free continuous delivery service for open source developers. And I, I thought it was good to highlight this just because there are systems now that we can participate in to have the computers do the hard work. It's becoming more and more common for open source software to be deployed against different types of architectures, ARM, Intel, etc. And having systems that can automatically do these builds and test them is key. And so if this is something that applies to you, if you're working on a project out there where you need something like this, I encourage you to check out the link in the show notes, linuxactionnews.com slash 81. Yeah, the only requirement is that your code is on GitHub and free and open source. So it's pretty good marketing by them, I think. Give it away to free and open source projects and then Anyone who wants to do proprietary stuff, here's our offerings for not very much per month or whatever. So, yeah, hats off for them. They've got us talking about it. Yeah, and it, it is a more and more common business model, and it's one that I think is pretty great because it benefits the open source community, and they get a little attention for it, and everybody wins. 
Well, maybe, except for some cases, not everyone wins. And that's something we have to figure out, especially during the nuclear holocaust. <laughs> yeah, let's end on a nice cheerful note and talk about nuclear <laughs> weapons. Yeah. Okay, great. <laughs> And there is a Linux tie-in here, of course. Of course there is. Well, what actually makes me feel better about this whole thing is that this new supercomputer, which is going to be doing the various testing for the existing nuclear arsenal to make sure that it's all well and good, is running a proper operating system, Red Hat Enterprise Linux. So I can sleep safe at night. Right. In Livermore, California sits Sierra, the world's second most powerful supercomputer. Sierra looks unassuming, just kind of looks like a basic server farm with a visual style to it, but it's actually a massive connected hive of 190,000 processing cores. It was completed earlier this year and has been on a bit of a shakedown cruise since then. The researchers are throwing different kinds of jobs at it right now to kind of see what it can do, like climate models, astrophysics, medicine, you know, the basics. But early next year, Sierra's real work will begin. The system will be air-gapped, disconnected from any external network to prevent any kind of unauthorized access. And then once that happens, it begins its real calculations. The calculations it was purpose-built to carry out. Simulations of nuclear weapon launches and their detonations and potentially quite a lot more that's classified, so we'll never get to hear about it. But, yeah. oh well, at least it's running Linux, eh? Yeah, and like we mentioned, this is the world's second most powerful supercomputer. I believe the number one is in Tennessee, and it is actually almost essentially the same thing as the Sierra system. So it's an open architecture that's available to the public, so we actually know quite a bit about it. And that also runs Red Hat Enterprise Linux, and it's doing jobs available to us plain civilians. And so we actually have a lot of insights into what this super high-tech one for the military does. And they say in a video that we'll have linked in the show notes that they're already working on the next version called El Capitan, which should have an order of magnitude more processing power. (laughs) Oh, man. I'm just happy when I can get Vulcan games working off of my dock connected over Thunderbolt, Joe. (laughs) Yeah, shouldn't it have been called Mojave instead of El Capitan? Yeah, that is weird that it's two different Mac OS uh, release names back-to-back. I don't like that. (laughs) Doesn't sit well with me, Joe. But you know what? We'll keep an eye out. We'll keep watching, and we'll report here. Check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. Yeah, do that. Not enough of you have done that recently. Tell us what kind of stories you want to hear. linuxactionnews.com slash contact. But more importantly, we need to get this on your radar. Join us at Linux Fest Northwest, April 26th through the 28th, 2019, at the Bellingham Technical College right here in the beautiful Pacific Northwest. I think if enough of you show up, I might just be able to convince Joe into doing a live show at Linux Fest Northwest. Yeah, you never know. The plan is for me to be there, so just my arm, I suppose. As long as it's not too early in the morning. <laughs> Come on, that could be so much fun, doing a Linux Action News there live at the Fest. You got to be there. Yeah, it does sound like a lot of fun. So yeah, come April 26th to 28th. I'm really looking forward to it, Joe. It's also Linux Fest Northwest's 20th anniversary. So it's, it's, the, it's the one to go to if you've never been before. But in the meantime, we'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I am at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later. Bye.